back to Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, please grab that and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 together. I want to speak today to the issue of the church, God's calling, our walk. God's calling, our walk. And this title really serves as an overview title for the whole of the book of Ephesians. We're not going to try to preach the entirety of the book of Ephesians today in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but I do want to give uh, some sense of a general picture of the whole of the book and then work our way to narrowing our attention to chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, where we will see Paul's admonition to the church to walk worthily of the calling with which they have been called. We gave a little bit of an overview of the concept of the calling last week, but I want to kind of pull your mind's attention around a couple of particular ideas regarding that calling. God's calling to the church is first and foremost in the book of Ephesians rooted in the eternal purpose of the triune God. It is rooted in the eternal purpose of the triune God. Now this is not the, the five points of the sermon. This is just the outline before the outline before the outline. This is just some, some stuff I want to kind of clear out of the way. But I want us to be thinking this way as we begin. The calling of the church is rooted in the eternal purpose of the triune God. God, in saving the people for the display of His glory, for the summing up of all things in Christ, by making Christ the head of the church, and putting all things in subjection under His rule and reign, He roots this calling in His eternal triune purpose. He has purpose there in Ephesians chapter 1 to save a people for the glory of his name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working the work of election and predestination and adoption and redemption and guaranteeing us, sealing us by the Holy Spirit for the day of promise. He's rooted us, this calling is rooted in the eternal purpose of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Furthermore, this calling of the church is established in the definitive work of God for the church, in establishing the church as a new humanity, in gracious covenant with himself through Christ Jesus. And he does this, we saw in chapter 2 and verses 14 to 16, and earlier in chapter, or later in chapter 3, verses 9 to 10, he does this that he might display his manifold wisdom before all rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God in putting Christ forward and in doing this definitive work of establishing the church. I mentioned last night to the kids at the dinner table as we talked about this. It's as if he was sticking his proverbial finger in the proverbial eye of the devil and all those powers that fell with him and rebelled with him to say, look, I did what I said I would do. I would indeed for my own glory and for the good of my people, I would establish them as this new humanity. I would bring them together in covenant with myself. Thirdly, God's calling of the church is secure by his having established the church on a solid foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being a cornerstone that she might be his new temple household in which he might dwell by his spirit. We observe this in chapter 2 in verses 19 to 22 where he pictures the church as a building, as a household in which he would dwell in. What kind of house does God dwell in but a temple? 
Fourthly, the calling of the church is carried forward in the appointment of the Apostle Paul to bear the name of the Lord before all the nations of the world as a faithful steward of the transformative grace of God, proclaiming the mysterious truth of the gospel that the Gentiles, along with the Jews, will now be brought together to inherit God's promises and being made fellow members of the same body. Paul makes this very clear in chapter 3, in verses 2 through 12. And finally, the calling of the church, God's calling of the church, is anticipated by Paul with great confidence. We see in his prayer at the end of chapter 3, that he prays that the church might bring glory to God through Christ in being filled to all the fullness of God as the body of Christ himself, who by his own being and glory indeed fills all in all, and the church will reflect that same glory in filling full the glory of Christ in and through herself by God's provision. This is just a small picture of that high and holy calling that is set forth in the opening chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in chapters 4 to 6, Paul makes a definitive turn. And he turns from God's gracious calling upon the church to the divine direction that she now has to walk in light of that calling. If we were thinking in terms of maybe like the big picture of the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 to 3 address the issue of God's high and holy calling to the church, and chapters 4 to 6 speak about the walk that she is to have in light of that calling. If we just thought a little more closely about chapters 4 to 6, we can see in verses 1 to 16, this broad section that we will or will even cover this month, in verses 1 to 16 of chapter 4, he considers their walk generally. And then, in chapter 4, four verse 17, through almost the very end of chapter 6, he, he narrows in and focuses on specific aspects of that call. But if we narrow our focus down even more, we come to verses 1 to 16, and we see in verses 1 to 16 that Paul breaks up his thinking in two different ways. He says, the way that you are going to walk worthily of the calling with which you've been called is by an eager and diligent maintaining of the unity of the Spirit and by an attaining to the unity of the faith in Christ Jesus. Well, it's that maintaining of the unity of the Spirit that we want to come to today in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4. Look at your scripture, if you would, with me. Let's read these verses together and ask the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Therefore, I, Paul, write to the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come now to your word. 
And we ask that you would bless this reading and this proclamation. Might you help us to see the glorious and heavenly calling that we have been called with. And might you help us to see and embrace this exhortation of the Apostle Paul to walk together in a manner worthy of such a call. We ask God your help and your assistance by your Holy Spirit, the glory of Christ, and the good of our own souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the substance of the exhortation that Paul gives is really quite simple, and it's found in chapter 4 and verse 1. It's right in the middle of verse 1, and it simply says, I implore you to walk. I implore you to walk. Now, there are several things that I'd like to do today as we kind of unpack this. I want to begin by noting three things about that exhortation to walk. Then I want to give five observations from the directive that Paul gives the church, and then, Lord willing, we'll have time. We'll make five points of corresponding applications. Just a few notes, if you will, about this exhortation being implored to walk. These, number one, these are the words of a friend, and they are words that can be trusted. They are words of a friend that can be trusted. When I first opened this particular text several months ago, and I began looking at it in light of this month, spending time together in it, one of the first things I did is one of the first things I do almost every time I come to a text, I try to find the verb. I try to find the verb. Why? Because that's where all the action's happening. That's where, that's where movement is going on. And in this particular section, I wanted to look at the verb because it sounds a lot like Paul is telling me I need to do something. In other words, it sounds like a command. I implore you to walk. Imagine how surprised I might have been found when I realized that the verb in this particular section is not an imperative. It's not a command. And that was like, that just threw me off. And I was like, well, great. Does that mean this is just a, a good idea? Does that mean I don't really have to do this? Does this just mean that, well, it's like one of those on the list of if you get around to it today's. You ever give the kids a list of things to do? These are things that have to be done today. These are the things if you want to do them, and you always know the things, they're never going to get done at all. You'll, you're, you're hoping the things, you, you've, cut the, you've cut the list of what they have to do down to the bare bones minimum, all right? Like, get through the day without killing your sibling. Let's see if we can check that one off today. That'd be great. Well, no, but it does sound like that. But but there are different translations of this, of this term. The, the New American Standard here that I'm reading from has the word implore. Implore. The King James uses the older word beseech. Might sound a little more urgent. The ESV and the, the 2020 New American Standard use the word urge. Williams' translation, a paraphrase, gives the word entreat. Well, the Greek term is simply parakaleo, and you may, you may have heard that word before, and I, and I say the word not so you can, oh, great, we know a Greek word now, but I want you to hear a word in there, the parakaleo. You can probably hear paraclete in there. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is called the paraclete. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. 
And parakaleo, the verb form of the noun, the verb form is, is speaking about coming along beside someone, para, beside them, kaleo, to call out, to come along beside someone and call out. It gives this image of, of a friend coming up beside you, putting his arm around you, and exhorting you and encouraging you as you walk in the way. This particular form of this word is used in Paul's imploring of a man by the name of Philemon in regard to a slave that has run away from him known as Onesimus. I didn't ask uh, Ryan to read there from uh, Timothy about masters and slaves, but it certainly seemed to dovetail very well. In Philemon chapter 1, in verses 8 to 10, it reads this, Therefore, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. Paul says, I could, Philemon, if I wanted to. I could just kind of give you the what for, and I could just tell you, do this. All right? Remember, Onesimus has run away, if you don't know the story, and he's found his way to the Apostle Paul. He runs from, he runs from Philemon, this master that he has. He runs into Paul, and Onesimus meets another master, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's a brother to Philemon. Now he's a brother to Paul, and Paul wants Philemon to basically, you know, forgive the debt, forgive what he did that was wrong, whatever he's done, whatever he owes you, charge it to me, and send him back to me so he can help me. He can be a a benefit to me and to you. Paul says Onesimus can kind of be with Paul the representative of Philemon. In other words, Philemon, you, you owe me. <laughs> you owe me, and you should be here helping me, but you're not, and that's okay. But Philemon can be here in your place. And so what Paul says to them is, yet for love's sake, hear that, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. There's our word. <coughs> Excuse me. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged And now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. He says, for love's sake. Take that image and apply it here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I implore you, for love's sake, for the sake of me, I'm, I'm the apostle Paul, the aged one, and I'm appealing to you. He's not coming like Paul the hammer. This is Paul the friend. And he comes and he appeals to them. These are words of a friend that can be trusted. Secondly, notice this about this particular exhortation. These are positive words that anticipate full compliance. Paul is expecting nothing less than a full embracing of this exhortation. Paul is filled with every hope that the Ephesians will in truth receive this exhortation. To borrow again from Paul's word to Philemon, he has every confidence in their obedience in Philemon 1. 21. One writer comments that what we have here, and he is referring specifically to the entire second portion of the letter, but his words fit well to the initial exhortation that we have here. He says that, that, that this is a concise, benevolent injunction that reminds of moral practices to be pursued or avoided. It expresses or implies a shared worldview and does not anticipate disagreement. Paul sees himself on common ground with the Ephesian church. He is among friends. 
he is among comrades in the battle. And he exhorts them toward love and good deeds in a common walk together. You know, one of the things that they say is that as a leader, you shouldn't be exhorting people to do things that you're unwilling to do yourself. Paul is exhorting them to do what he, in fact, is doing, has done, and will do, and he's doing it with them. I'm imploring you to walk, but this walk is our walk. This walk is the Christian walk, and he's anticipating a positive response from them. One final thing to note about this exhortation is that specifically regarding this common walk, these are words of daily practicality. If, you, if, you're, if you're the guy that's sitting there today going, I wish sermons were relevant. I wish sermons were talking about you know, where I am, all right? Well, you understand there's nowhere to be except where you are. And if you think you're not where you are, anyway, you might belong in an institution. I'm not where I am. Not where, sermons hit you where you are. This is, this is a very practical message in the sense that every one of us is to live this walk every day. This doesn't just start tomorrow, it starts now. Listen to what, what Paul says about walking in the book of Ephesians itself. He says in Ephesians 2.10, we have been created in Christ to walk. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We have furthermore in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, we have been called to walk in contrast now to how we used to walk prior to coming to Christ. He says in verse 17, This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Not time to read all that. Just go read that on your own, perhaps, verses 17 to 24 of chapter 4. Also, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, we are called to walk after the manner of Christ, which is in love. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. We are to walk in Ephesians 5, 7 to 10, we are to walk consistently with who we are in Christ. And Paul describes that as children of light. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of life consists. In other words, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk as a child of the light? He says here, the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We are talking here in this exhortation to walk. We are talking about being exhorted to walk in moral virtue and godliness and righteousness and doing things that please the Lord. We're told later in Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 15 to 17 that we should walk with great care and wisdom for the times that we're in are indeed evil. Ephesians 5.15 says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The days in which we live indeed are evil. Brothers and sisters, you should not be getting your moral marching orders from social media and the news and your friends 
or listen, your own heart, I think this would be a good thing to do. Everything that you do in your life should be done in submission to the Word of God. Let me give you a, a, a principle. Young people, I'll give you a principle. Before you go do something in your life, before your friends take you off a cliff like lemmings to the sea, before you just go do it because you thought it would be fun or everybody else is doing it, ask this question first. Does God have an opinion about whatever it is I want to do? Does God have an opinion about what I want to do? Does God have an opinion about the friends that I'm choosing? Does God have an opinion about the job or career that I'm choosing? Does God have an opinion about what my friends want me to go and do with them? You're at your friend's house and they're having a party and they want to watch a movie. Ask yourself the question, does God have an opinion about the movie that you're about to watch? This is not to lay, you know, legalistic bonds upon you. But this is to tell you that God has his word and God has a moral will and God wants you to be what? Righteous people. And the days in which we live, they are evil days. Be careful. Humble yourself under the word of God. Well, that could be the sermon. But the clock says I have time, so let's go on. Okay, those are three things I just wanted you to kind of note and think about these, this particular exhortation. They are words of a friend that can be trusted, and they're coming to you by way of a friend that can be trusted. They are coming to you not simply by me. They are coming by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the paraclete who's coming beside you. The, the paraclete is coming beside you to parakaleo you. He, he, the one who is the encourager, is coming to encourage you. They are positive words where the Lord Jesus Christ is expecting anticipated indeed that we will as his sheep, as his people, fully comply with his word. We will humble ourselves under it and say, yes, Lord, by your grace, we will walk in this way. And finally, it is a practical exhortation to live in such a way to please the Lord God, not just in your own life, but in our life together as a church. Well, this exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. I want you to notice this with me here in verses 1 to 6. This walk to which all God's people have been called is to be considered by us today by way of five observations. This walk to live in a manner worthy of our calling is, let me give you all five of these, then we'll come back. It is fueled by lavish grace. It is fueled by lavish grace. It is modeled by faithful saints. And I'll repeat these here in a moment as we go through them if I'm going too fast. This walk we've been called to, to live in a manner worthy of our calling, is fueled by lavish grace. It is modeled by faithful saints. It is measured by a heavenly calling. It is characterized by true spirituality and grounded in the triune God. Number one, it's fueled by lavish grace. It's modeled by faithful saints. Number two, three, it's measured by a heavenly calling. Four, it's characterized by true spirituality. And fifth, it is grounded in the triune God. Well, let's look at these as we find them in the text. Number one is this. Observe that our calling here, this way we're to walk, is fueled by lavish grace. 
Now look with me again in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, and that's it. I wanted to preach the whole sermon last Sunday on that word. I love that word, therefore. And I know it's cliche, but if you see a therefore, you need to what? Look and see what it's there for, all right? Because it's there for a reason. I see some smiles going around. Somebody's told some people that before. All right, there's enough for a month of sermons, brothers and sisters, in this one word. With this term, Paul transitions in the letter, generally speaking, from principle to practice, from doctrine to devotion, from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, in a sense from gospel to law. Here he transitions from done versus do. He is calling upon us in this word to shift in our thinking from simply considering what God has done to what he calls us to do as his people. Surely there's overlap uh, still to be found, but generally he's moving at this point from what theologians refer to as moving from the indicative to the what? To the imperative. Some of you are thinking that. All right, so we'll give you credit. If you were thinking that, you can get credit for it. All right, see Ryan later for your ticket. I don't know. What are we giving these days for answers to sermons? Nothing? Man. Man, we're much nicer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, don't, we don't give anything either. But, all right, from the indicative to the imperative. Now, Paul does this in other letters as well. Uh, most notably in Romans chapter 12. I want to direct you there. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Some, for some of you, I don't know, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 may be the only verses you know out of the book of Romans, all right? It's like every preacher just keeps turning here for this illustration. But in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we find a prime example of moving from the indicative to the imperative. Paul says, therefore I urge you, Here he is again urging us. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, or some translations have, I like, I like this translation, in view of the mercies of God. That may be my old college days in the NIV. I don't know. Can you even say NIV in here? Is that even permissible to say that? I'm sorry. And I confess. That was college days. I've, anyway. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Thus, the indicative, that which God has done for man in Christ in showering him with mercies, and you can see chapters 1 to 11 of the book of Romans for that, is now the ground, that indicative is now the ground of the imperative to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices, no longer being conformed to the world, but rather being transformed to do the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Note the order, indicative and then imperative. They must not be reversed. Herman Ritterboss, a Dutch Reformed theologian of the 20th century, noted in his work on the theology of Paul, he said the indicative, quote, furnishes the ground for the imperative. He says this also, quote, the imperative is grounded on the reality that has been given with the indicative, appeals to it, 
and is intended to bring it to full development. Well, much more could be said, but we need to move forward to a second observation. Observation number two is this. Our calling is modeled by faithful servants. I note back again in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord. What an interesting self-identifier. Why, why does he talk about his imprisonment? I mean, is he looking for like sympathy? Uh, I'm in prison. You know, you're out there. You be faithful. I'm in prison. Woe is me. Poor me. No, there is a connection in chapter 4, verse 1, with some things that he's already said back in chapter 3. So look back over there with me for a moment. He's already cracked the door on his imprisonment. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, in the New American Standard translation that I have here, at the end of verse 1, there's a long dash. Maybe you see that. Uh, I'm not sure what your translation has there. But basically, what that dash is indicating is at this point, Paul is going to break his train of thought for just a few moments while he tells us something else, and then he's going to come back in and pick up this train of thought and finish out what he intended to do. So let's see if we can notice the, 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 the break. Back in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, break, chapter 3, verse 2, through verse 13, and now let your eyes fall down the page to verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. So back in chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, what does he do for the sake of the Gentiles? He, he's going to pray for them. That's what he wants to do. He's going to pray for them. But before he prays for them, before he goes into the prayer of chapter 3, verse 14, all the way through the end of chapter 3, before he prays for them, he explains in verses 2 through 13 why he's praying for them. He is praying for them because God has commissioned him as the apostle to the Gentiles with a particular measure of grace, a stewardship of grace given to Paul for the benefit of the nations, and he has spent his days, he is still spending his days for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, we don't have time to read chapter 3, verses 2 through 13, but you can read that later. And in those verses, he is speaking to them about the stewardship of grace that was given to him on their behalf he does everything he does. And you might say, for the glory of God? Well, yes, but in this particular context, he's doing everything he's doing for the sake of the Gentiles, for the benefit of the Gentiles. He is trying to minister to them the grace of God that he's been given on their behalf. Then he moves into this prayer. Now, in doing this, though, he uses this little phrase that you have to note in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He didn't have to say that. He could have just said, for this reason, I, Paul, for the sake of you Gentiles, I pray for you. But he throws that little phrase in again. The prisoner of Christ Jesus. 
It's the same basic phrase that he uses in chapter 4, verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord. Paul frequently does this. Paul frequently points to his imprisonment. Now, one reason for this may be is that Paul's frequently in prison, and he's writing letters from prison. But why does Paul point to his imprisonment over and over again? He does this, for example, in, here in Ephesians in 3.1 and 4.1. He does it in, uh, in Acts chapter 23, verse 18. Uh, the, uh, the prison guards are speaking of him, and he's just called Paul the prisoner. In 2 Timothy chapter 1.8, he is his prisoner, or Christ's prisoner. Philemon, verse 1, verse 9, verse 23, speaks of his imprisonment. Uh, later in Ephesians, in Ephesians 6.20, speaks about being an ambassador in chains. 2 Corinthians 11, Colossians chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and 2 Timothy chapter 2 all speak about Paul being a prisoner. Well, consider just a couple of them. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. This was also rather providential. I didn't know we were reading 2 Timothy today, but this is helpful. You've already read this once. 2 Timothy chapter 1, in seeking to encourage Timothy in, of all places, Ephesus, in seeking to encourage him to stand with him and being willing to suffer for the gospel, Paul points to his imprisonment. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, or beginning in verse 6. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. To encourage Timothy to faithfulness, he later in the same letter points Timothy to a man by the name of Onesiphorus, a faithful brother whose faithfulness Timothy had observed firsthand, who was not ashamed of Paul's chains, and apparently Timothy was being tempted to be ashamed of the apostle Paul. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. You are aware, he says, Timothy, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, and the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and, note, was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. This is, a, this is an example of what um, sometimes is called litotes, which means you, you, you kind of underemphasize something to make a point. Because notice what he says in verse 16, he was not ashamed of my chains. What he means is he made a great boast about my chains. He was proud of my chains. So proud was Onesiphorus of the chains of Paul that when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. Onesiphorus doesn't just like send a clandestine note. Hey, get this note to the Apostle Paul. I don't want anybody to know that I'm with him. Or I know he's in prison right now. He's like, you know, chained up to a guard or something. I don't want to risk getting chained up myself. No, Onesiphorus eagerly sought for him eagerly searched for him and found me, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know, Timothy, you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Onesiphorus is, is from Ephesus. Timothy knows him. This would be a, a, a shame 
to Timothy to be ashamed of Paul's chains when one that he knew was such a faithful brother like Onesiphorus was indeed very bold and boastful about the chains of the apostle. Let's go back to one more text in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 in verse 19 He asks the church, he asks the Ephesians, he says, pray, in verse 19, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. In other words, the Ephesian believers hearing from Paul the prisoner. The Ephesian believers hearing from Paul the prisoner are not without a clear example of the kind of faithfulness called for in their call. Their calling had indeed been modeled by faithful saints whom they knew very well. Onesiphorus, and most clearly, Paul himself. One might even recall here the long-standing relation between the Apostle Paul and the Ephesian church that's highlighted in Acts chapter 20. Paul notes in Acts chapter 20 that he had faithfully ministered among the Ephesian saints, do you remember this? For three years, for three long years, he admonished them faithfully. This is the longest stint in Paul's ministry that has ever been recorded for us. Let's move on, though, here to a third observation. Our calling is fueled by lavish grace. It's, it's a command, though it's not framed with an actual command. It's, it's, it's given by a friend, this appeal, but it still carries the force of a command. It's rooted in the indicatives of God's grace. Paul himself has served as a model of faithful service. Thirdly, our calling is measured by a heavenly calling. Our calling is measured by a heavenly calling. Our calling to walk and to be faithful in this world is measured by God's calling itself. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. There's a lot of calls in these verses, right? Trying to keep them, keep them straight, right? We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called or to which you have been called. According to Paul, our calling, which he addresses in many of his letters, is, in Romans 8, 28, a call according to divine purpose. You've heard this verse before in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. It is in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, a high and heavenly calling. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. It is a call in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, to, to be forward-moving in your Christian life. Paul says in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is, according to Romans 11.29, an irrevocable calling. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
It is, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, a holy calling according to grace and not merit. 2 Timothy 1, 9, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You notice there at the end of that text, it's also an eternal calling, meaning that it is a secure calling. And finally, one other word about our calling in Ephesians 4, 4, it is a calling that is granted to the believer hope. Verse 4 says this, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One writer said that God's calling establishes the norm or the criterion to which their conduct should conform. This glorious, divine, heavenly, high, forward-moving, irrevocable, gracious, eternal, secure, hope-filled calling should call us forward to walk in a manner, in a measure that is equivalent to that calling. In other words, God has set the standard for the calling, and we ought to be walking in a way that lives up to that glorious calling. Notice a fourth observation. Our calling is characterized by true spirituality. Look back in Ephesians chapter 4. Our calling is characterized by a true spirituality. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We note this true spirituality of this calling in three phrases that are given to us here in the text. We are to walk with all humility and gentleness. We are to walk with patience, showing tolerance for one another. And we are to walk in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, think with me for just a moment about each of these. I call each of these a, a picture of true spirituality. We are not being called to work on our own. We are not being called to, we're not being called to, to muster up strength within ourselves to fulfill these kinds of commands. Remember, the imperative to do something is rooted where? In the indicative. So there is a dependence as I strive to live my life and walk the walk that I'm called to live. There is a dependence upon the prior work of grace that's already been done in my life. I need to walk with all humility and gentleness. Let me take you to a passage in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. In short, we could say that walking with all humility and gentleness is to indeed walk as Jesus walked. To walk as Jesus walked. He says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am what? I am gentle and humble in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The same terms that are used in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul calls us here to walk after the manner of Christ with humility and gentleness. Now, the world does not prize humility and gentleness, but Christ puts an inestimable value on humility and on gentleness. The kind of walk that you and I are to do together is to be a walk that will bring honor and glory to Christ. Secondly, notice we are to walk together with patience, showing tolerance for one another. With patience, showing tolerance for one another. In other words, in our walk together as brothers and sisters in Christ, there are going to be those times where we are not going to what? We are not going to agree. You see this, and we don't have, a, we don't have the nanny cam on your house, but if we'd had the nanny cam on your house this week, we could probably find you know, another bunch of sermons for a month of Sundays. All right, We could have had all kinds of examples of how we don't always get along. I mean, if, if I'm wrong... You come talk to me later because I want to know what you're doing because it's not the way it is in our house. There are all kinds of times in living together as a family where you can rub people the wrong way. And this is the way it is, brothers and sisters, in the church. We mentioned a text last Lord's Day. Let me just remind you of it in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 encourages us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice again the text. Why, why would they be tempted to forsake the assembling of themselves together? Because coming together is hard. Coming together is difficult. Not forsaking your own assembling together as is the habit of some. But we should consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We mentioned that word stimulate. It means to create friction. It means to rub up against one another. And that's the way life is in the corporate body of Christ. We are constantly running into one another. We are constantly irritating each other. You're getting that conversation, maybe with, you know, a group of the ladies gets at the back, not to pick on the girls, but a group of ladies gets together and somebody says something. And I tell you what, when we get back in the car on the way home, several husbands are going to hear something like, you won't believe. I, I just, ah, mm. Sometimes she makes me so mad. And your husband tries to say something, oh, be patient, dear, whatever. Are you listening to me? You know, and now the guy's in trouble. It's like, man, guys, sometimes just don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Just back up and just nod your head mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and pray. Pray the whole time. God, help me say something wise here. Or help me be like Job's friends and say nothing and be thought wise, all right? Guys, say rude things to one another all the time. Guys just seem to do that, right? We just love to be rude to each other, right? But every now and then, crosses that little line, you know? 
Or your wife hears some other guy saying something rude to you, and she's like, I can't believe he talks to you like that. Oh, he's just being a guy, honey. It's okay. It's wrong. <laughs> Great. It's okay. Anyway, we have all kinds of opportunities, do we not, to, to clash together. And it gets difficult in the church. But he says this is good. In other words, this is, this is often the cause of why people leave a church, because it's difficult. But that difficulty of learning to work together is what sanctifies us and grows us, and it provides a context in which we can encourage one another to love and good deeds. But we can't if we bail the moment it gets tough. If it gets hot in the kitchen, and the church is the kitchen, stay in the kitchen. Stay there. Work together. Find a way to work through the difficulties. Why? This is a way of, with patience, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. Thirdly, go back to Ephesians chapter 4. A third phrase that is given here, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, your Bible may have that broken up a little differently. What I what I, what I want to do with this is I want, to, I want to, to change the comma, and I want to take the verse break out of the way. So in the NAS, it says this, with all humility, verse 2, I'm starting in verse 2 of Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Maybe that's the way your Bible has it. And then verse 3 says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What I want to do is before in love, after the phrase tolerance for one another, I want to put a comma. Now, the, the Bible was not originally written. The New Testament was not written with commas, and it wasn't written with verse breaks. All right, So we have to kind of think through where the phrasing needs to kind of go here. I want to tell you what I want to do, and then I want to explain to you why, and then I want to show you another example of it in the book of Ephesians itself. So I want to, I want to move the comma. Um, to the phrase tolerance for one another. And then I want to take that little three and I want to move it back to before the phrase in love. And some of you are thinking, I'm so lost, all right? So basically what that'll do is it'll give it three phrases. The way we're supposed to walk is with all humility and gentleness, that's number one. Secondly, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. Third, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the third phrase I want to direct you to. Now, what that's going to do with the phrase, it's going to make the phrase surrounded by two prepositional phrases. In love, that's the first phrase, all right? Um, in the bond of peace, that's the last phrase, and the admonition or the direction for walking is there in the middle, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. That's what Paul's trying to get us to do. He's trying to get us to walk with humility and gentleness. That's a form of true spirituality. He wants to get us to walk with patience, showing tolerance for one another. That's a form of true spirituality. And he wants us in love and in the bond of peace to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. That's the, that's the high point of what he's trying to get us to. He wants us to preserve the unity of the Spirit, to be diligent to do that. 
And that puts the phrase or the directive, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, surrounded by these two prepositional phrase, in, phrases, in love and in the bond of peace. Now, look back with me to chapter 1. The same thing happens in chapter 1. And the translators have, in most translations, fixed this. but They still haven't moved the verse break because they don't feel like they have the authority to move the verse break, and that's fine. But notice chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, if you have a New American Standard, there's a period there. Period. All right? And then it says, in love... He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now, older translations have no period between the phrase holy and blameless before him and in love. In other words, they just read something like holy and blameless before him in love. And then there's the period. The NAS and some others have, have moved this to say that that prepositional phrase, in love, is not to be the end of verse 4, but it's actually the beginning of verse 5. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Here we have a central phrase, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, surrounded by, again, two prepositional phrases, in love and according to the kind intention of his will, placing emphasis on the middle phrase, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself. Now, go back to chapter 4 in verse 3. I think the same thing is being done here. If we borrow from the end of verse 2, the little prepositional phrase, in love, we can read it this way, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's the central phrase, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, surrounded by two prepositional phrases, in love and in the bond of peace. In other words, those two prepositional phrases kind of qualify the exhortation or the directive. One, one writer made this comment. He said, unity in the spirit or unity in the church is secured by the bond of peace. You notice that at the end of verse 3. The unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The spirit has joined us together as God's people, but the way it's going to be preserved, the way it's going to be diligently preserved is by you and I loving one another. In love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit that has been granted in this bond, this peaceful bond that he's made for us. And the way this writer says it is this way, unity in the church may be secured by the bonds of peace, but the links, hear this, the links in that peaceful chain are forged out of love. They're forged out of love. As we thought last month on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, on the necessity of love for the life of the body. What is it that's going to help you and I 
to be diligent to preserve the unity that God has brought us. It's a, it's a substantial unity. It's a true unity. It's a foundational unity. But practically speaking, the unity of the church can be what? It can be upset. It can be unsettled all the time. What preserves it? I need something that, that won't keep a record of wrongs. I need something that will endure all things. I need something that will help me to cherish you over myself. What does Paul point to in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? He points to love. Listen to how he says it again. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The kind of love or the kind of, the kind of um, how to say it here back in Ephesians chapter 4, the kind of, of, of unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that will be preserved will only be preserved if you and I have love one from another. And so when he says there in Ephesians chapter 4, in love be diligent, let, let 1 Corinthians 13 come into your mind, come into your heart to think, well, what, what, what kind of love do you want me to have toward my brothers and sisters? What kind of love will, will help me to, to actually bear with them a love that's patient, a love that's kind, a love that's not jealous, a love that doesn't brag, a love that's not arrogant and doesn't act unbecomingly, a love that doesn't seek its own and is not easily provoked. Here again, the statement made by that one writer, he said that unity in the church may be secured by bonds of peace, but the links in that chain are forged out of love, the kind of love that we need together, brothers and sisters, in the life of Christ's covenant Reformed Baptist Church, if it's to be a church, must be a chain, a bond forged by love. Now, I'm out of time. That clock, I don't know who bought it, but I want to talk to you later. But it says I'm out of time. And so that means is we're going to kind of cut this off right here in the middle. And we'll come back and finish, Lord willing, uh, next Lord's Day. But I would leave you with that kind of admonition to consider the calling with which you have been called and to consider that it must be maintained by love for one another. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bless your name. We ask, O God, that you would help us as we strive together in the formation of a church body. A church body that will find times and many opportunities where there is strain, where there is difficulty, where there is tension. And Father, we ask now, in days that we're probably not feeling that way. We're probably not feeling tense with one another. We're probably not feeling argumentative. We're probably not hopping in the car speaking about one another. 
But Father, I pray that attacks like this and truths like this would work like, like a preventative medicine, would help prepare us before the storm, would help prepare us before times of difficulty do come. And we ask, oh God, that you would take these kinds of truths and that you would settle them in our hearts and our minds, that we might walk together in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Keep us, God, like Christ, humble and gentle. Keep us patient when we are wronged. And Father, fill our hearts with the love and the peace that we will need to diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I pray, Father, for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would use your word, that it would dwell within us richly, that you would help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that we might live, that we might walk in such a way that is indeed worthy of our high and glorious calling. We ask these, Father, we ask these things for the sake of Christ and the good of our own souls together. In Jesus' name we pray.